Welcome to Historical Fiction Unpacked. I'm your host, Allison Treat. Hello, readers, and welcome back to the podcast. This is episode nine of season five, and today I'm sharing a conversation I had with Jen Toronto. Jen is known as the Gilded Girl, and she is has been called one of the funniest voices in inspirational fiction. So she has written oh, I think 20 books, she said, about the Gilded Age, and they're all romantic comedies. So we had a great conversation. It's a little longer, but she had so many good things to say, and it was a fun conversation. I know you're going to enjoy it. Those of you who listen all the time probably will recognize that she answered some of my typical questions before I even got to them, but that's awesome because it just, you know, flowed. So I'm not going to babble any more about Jen because she tells you all about herself in our conversation. So here's my conversation with Jen Toronto. Jen, thank you for joining me on the show today. Well, thank you very much for having me, Allison. Yes, your latest novel, A Match in the Making, released last month. Can you tell me about this book? Well, it is the first book in a new series, the Matchmaker series, and it revolves around Gwendolyn Brindley and Walter Townsend. And Gwendolyn Brindley is, um, she was, she was originally hired to be a paid companion to Mrs. Parker for the Newport summer season, which is where everyone in the, in the, 400, that's where they went. They went to Newport. It was very snobbish. It was very difficult to get accepted there. And, but she thought that it would be a bit of a lark because she has been the companion to her slightly demanding cousin for years. (laughs) But once she gets to Newport, Mrs. Parker, there were some before the season begins, which really begins in July, they have preseason activities, so to speak. And so they went to a picnic and Mrs. Parker was participating in a three-legged race. And she unfortunately she broke her leg, which <laughs> makes her not mobile and she is a matchmaker. So she changes Gwendolyn's position from paid companion to assistant matchmaker. So now Gwendolyn finds herself instead of, you know, maybe attending an event every once in a while, normally paid companions would, you know, maybe perhaps attend a luncheon or, mm-hmm. you know, a picnic, but they would never go to all of the, you know, the balls and things like that. Well, that that's where Gwendolyn is. And she has no idea how to be a matchmaker. And, um, so she's, Mrs. Parker is sponsoring two young ladies for the summer season. And, and Mrs. Parker really has her eyes on Mr. Walter Townsend, who has just re-entered the marriage mart. His wife died five years before. Mm-hmm. And so he has decided um, because he has three unruly children. And like, we're not <laughs> kidding when we say they're unruly. And he has decided that the only way to get them in hand is if he provides them with a new mother. So, um of course, you know, it's a Jen Toronto book, so things just go wrong from the moment they meet. <laughs> and that about sums it up. Yes. That sounds like so much fun. What a fun premise. What inspired you to write this story? Uh, well, you know, I've been meaning to write a matchmaker series mm. for years. Um, I keep a box of just ideas, and I find a lot of ideas when I'm doing research, you know, on whatever book I'm working on. And then I just throw those ideas into a box. And normally, when I'm writing, 
I normally do three book series. So when I'm on the second book in a series, that's when I normally open that box up and just like look through um, because I like the characters to, to, to begin to, I call it festering in my head. Uh, yeah. And so I pulled up the matchmaker one, but you know, I couldn't, it was during COVID for one. And mm. that was, I don't know about you, but I had a really difficult time yes. writing it with COVID, um, especially because I write comedy and mm-hmm. there just was nothing amusing about the whole situation. <laughs> no. So, um, so I just, I wanted to find a different take on matchmaking because again, it is, you know, I'm known for writing really quirky plot lines. And um, so I always start off by what if that's what I asked myself and nothing was coming to me. It wasn't <laughs> I'm like, what if? And then there's just silence. There's oh, no. no characters in anything. And then I was walking my dog on the trail and and I'm like, so uh what if? And then I and then it just came to me. It was like, what if there's a paid companion and she all of a sudden finds herself placed in a matchmaking situation? She's gotta be a matchmaker. Mm-hmm. Not a, not a full-blown matchmaker, but only an assistant matchmaker because she's not qualified. Right. And it just sort of went off from there. And that's, so that's how I came up with the, with the first story. And then, and then after that, I figured out where I was going to go with book two and book three. Great. So is that a common way that you work out your ideas going for a walk with your dog? Yes. I spend a lot of time on the trail. Um, I have a, she is an older dog. We rescued her actually when COVID first started. Mm -hmm. I always said I had, um, I'm partial to cattle dogs. They're just really intelligent and, but they're really, really quirky and they can be, they can be a handful. But um, so I had a cattle dog for 15 years. Mm. And then when she died, I said, no, there's absolutely no way I'm ever, 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 ever going to get another cattle dog or any dog at all. Aww. And um, I just happened to stop at my mechanics one day and he had two cattle dogs roaming around his his front office. So like an idiot, I asked him where he got them. And he's like, oh, we always get our dogs from the New Hope Cattle Dog Rescue Site. So then I found myself perusing for like a year, but nothing oh. struck me. So I'm like, yeah, yeah, so I'm right. I don't need, I don't need to get a dog. And then COVID hit and I was perusing the new hope cattle dog site. And there she was, it was Remy and she'd had a horrible life. She'd been oh. found starving to death and pregnant on a reservation in New Mexico. Wow. And it said, and then somebody had taken her in and they wanted to put, make her into um, a working cattle dog. Well, she is very obstinate. So she <sighs> did not do well with that. <laughs> And so then somebody else took her in, but it was um, a woman who just, who had an apartment and she finally said, you know, this, this dog needs to be able to have a fenced backyard where she can just lounge in the sun. So yeah. So I went and saw Remy and brought her home and she's been with me ever since, but she, um, yeah, she's, she's a pretty chill dog, but she loves to go on the trail in the morning. So we do a trail in the morning and then she likes to go back out in the afternoon. So yes, Allison, I spend a lot of time on the trail. That's great. Yeah. I find that walking is a great way to um, work out your ideas. Something about moving and being outside just loosens your brain. (laughs) It does. And if that does not work for me, I normally just pull out the vacuum cleaner and Mm. that, that I do that more like if I'm having trouble with the plot points, you know, then I just pull out the vacuum cleaner and, and go. But um, that hasn't worked very well for me lately. Um, during COVID, I built a she shed in the backyard oh. because I couldn't write with my husband in the house. <laughs> and it's not big enough to really do much vacuuming. In fact, I have a little Roomba down there that, you know, her yeah. name is Rosie after the Jetson and she she does my vacuuming uh, for me. Our Roomba is named Rita. It's oh, interesting. There you go. Everyone 
kind of names them. <laughs> they do. Yes. Yeah. Um, so you mentioned the 400 already. And if you read the Gilded Age at all, you know what you're talking about. And I know what you're talking about. But for the listeners who haven't read much or watched watched the Gilded Age, um, can you explain who or what is the 500? Yes. So um, I'm sorry, the 400. I just said 500. I can, I can do that. So um, it all started um, with the Industrial Revolution, just to give you a background of the whole Gilded Age. And there was wealth was being being made at an unprecedented rate. And what happened, though, was that in New York City, you have the Knickerbockers who, you know, they were there um, when New York was New Amsterdam. Yes. And they they were pretty, you know, they, they didn't live in flashy houses. They lived in brownstones like by Washington Square Park mm-hmm. or on one part of Fifth Avenue. Um, and they did not like the fact that the nouveau riche, as they called them, or the, you know, just nasty people yes. were moving, were trying to work because, yeah, people would make make these fortunes. And of course, they wanted to come to New York City and they wanted to be a part of the social scene mm-hmm. and they wanted to go to, you know, um, the Academy of Music and they wanted to be accepted. So, but the Knickerbockers did not want to let them into their midst. So they decided that they needed to have. They needed to have a, a, a leader. And so that was Carolyn Astor. And she mm-hmm. had with her um, Ward McAllister, who was the social arbiter of the day. And they were very, very snobbish. And they came up with all of these rules about who could or could not be admitted into New York society. Mm-hmm. So what happened is that they decided that um, at first you had to, your wealth had to go back three generations. And that was fun for a while, but then you have people like Alva Vanderbilt, who married um, William K. Vanderbilt, and they had more money than anybody, you know, so, but they were not admitted into Mm. the upper crust. So um, finally, it got to the point where they did relax their rules a little bit, and they admitted they would admit some of these very, very wealthy people. And so um, Warren McAllister was being interviewed one time and he was speaking about, you know, um, high society. And um, he said that there were only, there were only around 400 people who were actually considered high drawer enough to really be, you know, high society. So that's how the the name New York 400 came. Now the, the interesting thing is that there is debate on when he actually said that. Mm-hmm. Um, and when he actually provided a list to this, this, reporter there were not 400 names on it (laughs) how many how many were there you know i believe there was only oh it was like low 300s the list he gave Mm -hmm. and um and then he kind of i think he got some you know pushback on that right like well there's not 400 names on here so he added more you know throughout that you know, for okay. a year, he did add more. But no, at first, when he turned over a list, there were not 400 people in there. And some of the names were were questionable people, you know, <laughs> so um, th- that really didn't run around in high society. But um, yes, and then Ward, oh, by the end of like, gosh, so you're getting into the 1890s, he had fallen out of favor oh. with um, Carolyn Astor because he and other other high society matrons because he wrote a book um, society as I have found it. And I have read that book. You can find that book. Um, 
they have, you know how they have the ones that they redo and it's because it's of historical importance. You can find it on Amazon. Yeah. It is a dry read. I'm telling you right now, it's fascinating, <laughs> but I didn't think it was that bad. Like you would think when you pick up this book that it's going to be chock full of all the scandals that we knew about, but it's not, it's mostly about what wine do you serve with dinner? And he was oh. just, he was very pretentious, but, um, no, Carolyn Astor was furious about that. And then um about his his list? It, no, about him writing a book. Oh, writing a book. Okay. Had, you know, she wasn't actually thrilled about him having released the list. Either. Right. She thought that he was getting a little too full of himself. <laughs> um but then she was getting older and there were other society matrons who were beginning to take over, like um Alva Vanderbilt and mm-hmm. Mamie Fish and um Tessa Oh, I can't remember her last name. Ulrich, I believe. They were really they were really starting to take over because Carolyn was, you know, her husband dies, yeah. her daughter um ran away from her husband mm-hmm. to follow, you know, her boyfriend over to France. And then <laughs> when her father went over there to bring her home, he suffered a massive stroke and died. Mm-hmm. And so Carolyn was in uh, mourning for a while. And those those other society women, they did not wait around for her to come back. You know, they right. just took over. So, um, and then there was um, Harry, Le- Harry Lear or Henry Lear. My mind just went blank. Anyways, he became the next. He took over for Ward McAllister. And that's when things got really crazy in the 1890s and moving into the turn of the century. Okay. It's so, it's really interesting to me. And partly because I've just started researching and writing about it myself. So I don't, you're an expert. Um and I should just like glean everything I can from you <laughs> during this you interview. Should, you know, I, I mean, I have been in the Gilded Age now for, so my first book was released um, 10 and a half years ago. Wow. That was the first, the first book that I wrote in the Gilded Age. So you figure I've been in, yeah, <laughs> probably, <laughs> probably 12, 13 years by now I've been into the, into the Gilded Age. So right. and I just, um, I'm just reading. For, and for your um, listeners as well, um, I always recommend books and everything. So I just got the new Anderson Cooper. Um, and he went, I don't have it handy. So he wrote it with a, a woman who does more of the historical aspect of the book. But um, so he is a Vanderbilt. And, yes. Yeah, I knew that. Yes. But his story is fascinating. And I remember reading oh gosh, a couple of years ago, where, yeah, his mom, Gloria Vanderbilt, had said, there is no Vanderbilt money left. You will not be inheriting, you know, a lot of money, right? And so I saw that book just, I just got it last week. And um, you know what? It is, he has a wonderful way of writing. And it's mm. fascinating to, to hear that side of a story. So, right. so if anybody is interested in the Vanderbilt family, that's because it's just an easy read. Some of the other books that I have on the Vanderbilts, yes, they are very dry. And it's right. Um, the glitter and the gold that is Consuela Vanderbilt's book. Um, and it, you know, she led a very, very interesting life because her mother Alva basically forced her to marry the Earl of Marble because they, she wanted Alva was, was such a social climber and she wanted a title in her family. Uh-huh. And so Consuela was forced to marry the Duke of Marlborough and he was in love with another woman and she was in love with another man and oh my it goodness. did not go well. But um, so when I picked up her book, I was expecting 
something different. You know, it was mostly just, you know, her talking about parties and it, was, it wasn't any of the gossip. I was, right. I was quite disappointed. I was hoping to get some fodder for story and no, I did not. Uh, yeah. And I'm curious now your books revolve around the 400 or, or a lot of them do, but how many, how do you incorporate real historical characters into your novels? How, how much do you mention them? Are they just like peripheral um, on the scene or have you actually you know what, more peripheral because you get you know what you just have to be so careful with yes. that you know i had um who, which one did i do so it was marshall so i was writing about this would have been a book i put in chicago i think it was caught by surprise yes temperance flower do and just so readers know or listeners know that is actually i did not make up that name that was a that, I got that from one of my friends. That was the name that I got so many letters on. But one of my girlfriends was doing research into her ancestry, and she found a temperance flower dew. And it was a oh lady temperance flower dew. And as soon as I heard it, I said, may I use that name? And she was like, <laughs> absolutely. And everyone's like, how, why would you make up such a name? And it's like, oh, I didn't make that up. She was like, she was, she was real. And real then she person. also gave me that same story, Mercy Minor. So I put both of them in the same story. I, I shake down my friends all the time. <laughs> if I know they're like on ancestry, it's like, well, get on there. And Lucetta Plum is another one from to wow. play a part. I got her from um, another one of my friends. So, um, that's but, fun. So when I was doing the Marshall Fields, I think it was um, one of the guys who was a manager there. You know what? His name's escaping me. There was a TV show about him, and he ended up with his own department store in over in England. Oh. Anyways, that particular character, I wrote him in as a character into Caught by Surprise, but I had him. Um, I had to pull back. Because I had read that he was he was actually quite difficult to work for, and that's how I wrote him. And my uh, editing team didn't like that. You know, they said, you know what, this is a little this is a little gray area here. So I took that out, and it, I made it more just like I mentioned him. In, is it in um, passing. you know, like she saw him across the room or whatever? She didn't end up in his office. <laughs> is it Mr. Selfridge? Is that what? Yes, thank about? you. Mr. I just looked Selfridge. it up. <laughs> well, you know, I have my other computer over here, and I'm like, should I like type that in now? <laughs> yes, that's who I had done. So, so it's rare that yes, I will have. So, what um, did you do? Did you change him? Change his name, or did you change his no, character? I kept, I kept him in the book because that was historically accurate. Right. right. He was the manager at Marshall Field. That's where he started. Um, but I didn't have temperance. No, no, no. You know what? I'm sorry. It's, it's Beatrix Waterbury is the person I took to Marshall Field and company. Um, so I didn't have Beatrix sit down with him. She got in all sorts of trouble because she was an heiress, um, a uh. grand heiress, and she got herself into some trouble. Um, back in New York. So her, her mother sent her off to stay with her aunt in Chicago. And then her aunt thought that, that it would be great experience for her. If she got a job. So she got a job at Marshall field. And, um, but everything just went, everything just went bad from, uh, you know, like the coat check didn't work out, you know, mm-hmm. working in gloves didn't work out. But so she was always landing in an office to get a scolding. Right. But nobody wanted to fire her because they knew who her aunt was. Right? Yes. They didn't exactly know who she was, but so I kept him in there, Allison, but it was more like, 
you know, she saw him walking across the floor, whatever. And then I right. made, created a different character, like a manager who was under him, who whom Beatrix was always sitting across the table from. Yes. Yeah. It is hard to, you have to tread lightly with people who were actual. They, yes. they had actual yeah. lives, you know. <laughs> and you can get, yeah. And you can get yourself in trouble. You know, I, there are still descendants. I mean, yes. are, not that that's, chances of that really are going to happen. You know, there's so many books out there, but mm-hmm. I just, yeah, I just, I just play it safe. So I will have, yes, Mrs. Astor is mentioned a lot in my books. Alva Vanderbilt is mentioned a lot in my books. Um, mm-hmm. Some of the, you know, um, so like Rockefeller is mentioned in my books. Um, and curiously enough, they were, they were not admitted into the 400. Um, so men like that. Um, Rockefellers the- were not. No, the um, wow. the Titans of Industry were not. Um, huh. And the Vanderbilts, so the Vanderbilts, again, if you read the book that, that I just suggested that Anderson Cooper wrote, yes. so it starts off with the Commodore Vanderbilt, right? And it's a, it's a fascinating family. Mm-hmm. And he basically, he was a self-made man. He started off by ferrying stuff from Staten Island to New York. Mm-hmm. Um, he borrowed $100 from his mother. He, then he ended up um, buying a couple more of those small little sh- like sailing vessels to, to ship. Then he ended up um, getting into bigger vessels and then he got into the railroads, but he was considered a very coarse man. He ate his peas with a knife and mm. he said what was ever on his mind. And there was no way Carolyn Astor was letting him into the 400. Right. Well, then his, after he died, his um, son. So when, when, the Commodore died. He was worth a hundred million dollars. Not today's money. Back then, he actually wow. had a hundred million dollars, which wow. is unheard of. Well, yes. his son Billy—that's what he called him. His name was William. He ended up doubling that by the time he died. So wow. then, his sons Cornelius the um, second and William K Vanderbilt. They inherited um, that fortune for the, the majority of it because the Commodore believed that you needed to keep the money together. So you couldn't just give to all of your, you know, all of his children. No, he didn't divide it evenly. He gave it to Billy, right? And he expected then Billy to instruct his sons to do the same. So William K married Alva Vanderbilt. And Alva, she really, really, really wanted to be a member mm. of the New York 400. Yeah. So she built um, this huge mansion. Um, was it 6660 six, 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 oh, or 666 on 5th Avenue? And it was absolutely beautiful. She used us. Um, Richard Morris Hunt was her architect. And, they, and she was very, very savvy because she decided um, Carolyn Astor had not played a, paid a call on her. And until Carolyn Astor paid a call on a woman, you were not admitted into New York High Society, just how it was. So she decided she was going to hold this grand um, costume ball. And she decided to to hold it in March, which was really after the season had ended. And everybody wanted an invitation because her house was gorgeous and everybody wanted to see what it was inside. Well, so Carolyn's daughter, Carrie Astor, she had been she had been training to they they performed these things called quadrilles and it was like a select group you know it was really like the popular kids right they got to perform these quadrilles and so she had been um, going to the family circle dance class um, to learn this I think it was the star quadrille 
And then, um, so Alva's daughter, um, Consuela, I believe, you know, had said, mm-hmm. you know, oh, um, yes, you know, Carrie's been practicing this. And she said, oh, that's just what, that's such a shame because, you know, I, I'm not inviting them. I'm not inviting the Astros to the party. I can't invite the Astros to the party because Carolyn Astros never paid a call on me. Oh my goodness. So it forced Carolyn's hand. Carolyn oh. Astor had to, and there's, there's a lot of differences, um, disparages between um, how this actually transpired. But yeah. what seems to have happened is Carolyn went in her carriage and then she had, um, her one of her footmen take her calling card up to Alva Vanderbilt's door and give it to the butler. So they never they never talked, and just just by delivering that calling card, then Alva was knew that that was a nod from Carolyn Astor that she was going to be accepted into society. So then she issued Carolyn um, an invitation. Wow! There you go. <laughs> Real history. Wow, that's that's all these intricacies of their like social mores and oh my goodness you know what it is a fascinating time period i when i first started um allison writing when i was breaking into the business i tried a bunch of different genres right um and i had i really just started writing quite by accident Um, my son and i he was in third grade and we wrote this little book together because we had struggled through this really horrible series about this bird. And my son said, you know, mom, those stories you used to tell me when I was little, they were much better. We should write our own book. So we did. And it just, I never planned on that going anywhere, but it was really fun to use my brain again because I'd been a stay at home mom ever since I had my son. I used to, I'm a major in fashion and the, my career before I did a lot of traveling and it was a lot of hours and I wasn't going to win any mom in the airport if I would have continued. So I became a stay at home mom, which was great. So, but sometimes, you know, it's like, you just feel like you're losing your mind because yes. it's all playgrounds and swimming pools. And you know what I mean? Right. And, right. And Dom was not, I only have one child, Dominic, and he mm-hmm. was never, he was never a clingy child. He um, stopped calling me mommy when he was two and a half years old. Oh my and goodness. <laughs> he would prefer, like, he would pretend he didn't have parents. So <laughs> it wasn't like, you know, but so I, yeah. So then I started writing different genres, just and learning everything I could about the publishing industry. And um, it wasn't until I would get all of these, I would get these responses from agents and they would tell me everything I was doing wrong. Which oh. There was quite a bit. Um, but I didn't realize at the time that that was unusual, but they saw something different. Uh, with my yeah. voice. They saw that it was, that it was definitely quirky. But when I, when I decided to write, um, cause I read a, a ton of historical romance. I just had not done that. I had done like middle grade and then I went to young adult and then I went to contemporary and then I wrote a women's fiction. And then, um, and then, so I finally write this, um, historical romance and it was Regency was where I first started off oh. and that's when I started getting just a ton of offers for fools and so I was like well that must be my sweet spot but um, I read this book on Alva and Consuela Vanderbilt um, mm-hmm. I just picked it up I just looked interesting to me and I just was like wow this is a great era and so I just started researching it more and more and I'm like you know what this this is where I'm gonna write and so I've been writing in there ever since Wow so you said 10 or 12 years ago or I think yes. 
um, was your first? That was my first published book. So I, okay. um, I signed my first contract with Bethany House in 2011, and that was for a change of fortune. And was that, have you always written Gilded Age? Is that? Every- no, no, no. No, okay. Uh, for, for Bethany House, yes. Okay. Bethany House, I have always written Gilded Age. Um, and the, the Regency that I had written, um, that's the one that got me an agent. Okay. And then she sent it out and then, um, but it was, it was more mainstream. And the reason um, I almost stopped writing because one of the big five publishing houses wanted it, but they said that I, that it was completely, it was a clean read. And mm. back then that was, you were really getting into the 50 shades of gray, like kind of, you know yeah. what I mean? Everything was getting a little naughtier and they wanted, and that's what they said. I had, I would have to naughty it up. And I uh, said, no. Yeah. So, <laughs> So that was the end of that one. Um, mm. And then I was just, I was going to just go back to fashion to tell you the truth. Cause you know, I, it, all that time, it had been about five years since I had written that book with my son and mm-hmm. just experimented with different genres. And I'm like, you know, he's a, he's, I think, I believe he was in middle school. Let's, you know, I could actually just go back to work. Cause you know, I'm not, I'm not gonna, I'm not going to just keep doing this forever and not finding any success. And right. then, then I just, um, I was cleaning the bathroom and I had put scrubbing bubbles on the shower and I'm always hopeful that they're really going to do what they say they're supposed to <laughs> and clean that shower for you, right? So I'm just like standing there, like hanging out and this, this entire story just like came from out of nowhere oh, and wow. it, 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 the whole thing was in my head and um, I was like, huh, what do you know? And so I am really OCD. Um, so I can't stop cleaning a house mid clean. So I just grabbed a thing of post-it notes and started writing all these stuff. And luckily I numbered them because they were all over the house by the time I was done. <laughs> and then I gathered them together and I just sat down at my computer and my husband got home and he was like, I thought you said you weren't, you were, you weren't going to write anymore. And I'm like, you know what? I'm pretty sure God's got something else in mind because mm. I just was like hand in a book and I have to write it. And so he's just looking at me like, okay. And I did. And it didn't take me long to write, Allison. And I handed it over to my agent. And she had an offer from one publishing house within a week. And oh, then my goodness. She said, we're not going with that one. She's like, Bethany has contacted me. And they're going to take this to pub committee. And they're, but they're not meeting for like, I don't know, it was like three weeks, right? Because they had recently met. So I was like, okay. And um, yeah, and then they, they took it to pub committee and then they bought it. So. Wow. I have been writing for them ever since. Wow. That's amazing. I love hearing these stories about what opened the door, just how God brought it about in his time. You know, it's, well, you can really, I, I had done, um, I was a keynote speaker at a, um, a reader retreat. Well, before COVID mm-hmm. and that was what I was, what I was speaking about. And there were so many things um, so many roadblocks were placed in my way um, that I mean, when you look at it in hindsight, it's there's definitely a reason that I was steered to where exactly where I am right now. This is where I was. This is where I'm supposed to be. And um, one of the biggest one was um, so my first agent was Mary Sue Seymour of the Seymour Agency. And she um, sadly passed away a few years back. Oh. But um, and so, but she represented a lot of inspirational authors. Mm-hmm. 
And um, so she is the one who had suggested um, she was going to take that Regency of mine into the inspirational market. And it had a more of a moral premise than a faith thread to tell you the truth. So I said, well, I don't, I don't think you'd be able to sell that. And, um, but a week after I signed with Mary Sue, who, who again represents, uh, represented a lot of inspirational authors, mm-hmm. I got a call from a big New York um, city agent who wanted to take me on, who had absolutely nothing to do with the inspirational market. Right. Oh. It was strictly mainstream. Yeah. So, um, if I would have gone with him, mm-hmm. I, I would have never even contemplated, you know, I, I probably, you know, after, after random house had said, you know, naughty this up, I'd been like, my rating days are over. That's right. right. Um, but because I went with Mary Sue, she's the one who said, you know, you should really think about this. And then that a change of fortune just, I mean, it literally just popped to mind. And I was like, wow. Yeah. <laughs> okay. That's amazing. And it's so encouraging, too, that you can see God's hand in it. It's not just random. It's not just... Um, no, ex- exactly. And, you know, and I didn't really... You know, I mean, I write um, I write romantic comedies. And there's, again, there's always a there's always a moral, moral premise. And, mm-hmm. um, yes, I want everyone to laugh, but there's always... I deal with some pretty difficult issues, but it's just layered into the comedy. Um and I really didn't, when I first came out, Allison, the, the toughest thing is, is when you are producing like a really different kind of product, right? Mm-hmm. You're going to get some pushback. And I, and I had people sending me horrible letters. I mean, oh, no. really mean. like I had no business, you know, this, this, cause I write like Lucille Ball comedy is what I write. And, um, you know, yeah. so I, I yeah. told my husband, I said, wow, I'm like, some of these people are like super mean. I'm like, I'm, you know, I didn't sign up for this. And I was, and again, I was contemplating like, you know what? I'm going to, I'll fulfill my contract with Bethany House for this series. And I don't know if I'm going to do this because, you know, I'm just, in my, in my view, I'm just Dominic's mom. You know what I mean? <laughs> he does a little writing on the side. Yeah. So, um, but no, I had this woman contacted me and she had AOS. Um, she could still she still had use of her hands and someone had given her um, a change of fortune. And I think a change of fortune was out and um, a most peculiar circumstance and maybe a talent for trouble, but maybe not. And she said it was the first time she had laughed in over two years. Oh my and goodness. she just needed to let me know that, you know, this is really important. Like, you know, I, I that I brought like a smile to the face of a terminally ill person. Right, right? Right. And, um, and I struck up a, like just a, casual correspondence with her and I managed to get her because she didn't know how long she was going to live. So I ended up getting her the rest of the books in the series. And then I had written, did I, did I start the other one? I can't remember, but anyways, um, and I stopped hearing from her and mm-hmm. her sister-in-law contacted me like six months later and yes, she had passed away, but she just wanted me to know how much joy I brought this woman just with these quirky, quirky books that I write and that, you know, the sister-in-law had taken to reading them out loud to, to her sister-in-law because her health had deteriorated so much. And she said, you know, this is this is a gift and you, you need to realize that you, know, that you have a gift and you should continue on. And then wow. and, and you, when you when stuff like that happens, it's like, okay, you know, it doesn't matter if somebody doesn't like my books. Like, right. you know what I mean? That's not, that's not the big picture. And so anytime I have contemplated, yes, going back to fashion, 
something like that happens. It never fails. Uh, and it's just, you know, it's just a sign for me. It's just a reminder from God. Like, you know, there's, there's a reason you do what you do. And, and uh, yeah, it's, it's pretty cool. That's amazing. Yeah. Well, Jen, this is a question I ask all my guests. How do you think learning about history through story helps us approach life in the present? You know, history often repeats itself and we're not really very good at, um, you know, looking at what has happened in the past and not having it repeat itself. So, yeah. <laughs> you know, you need, you need to do that. Um, in the Gilded Age, um, you know, you can see a lot of the stuff that, you know, today there are so many, you know, the, the 1% of people who have billions of dollars and, and yet, you know, we, we have people who, are in this country who suffer from severe poverty. You mm-hmm. know, you, you go into places where I'm from um, this little, the small town in Ohio that's right on the border of West Virginia and you get into the mountains and stuff like that. And there are, there are people who still don't have running water. And to me, that's unacceptable. And so yeah. you see the same thing. What happened in the Gilded Age, you know, it was all, um, you know, everybody says like, you know, a lot of these, you know, the robber barons or whatever, they were big philanthropists. And that's really not true. Mm-hmm. Later in life, yeah, maybe some of them did. But I mean, talk like um, Vanderbilt, the Commodore, the original one of the original person who made their fortune. Yes. Yes, he did give money and it turned into Vanderbilt University, right? Mm-hmm. But he only did that because his second wife, Frankie, told him that his name would would always be remembered if there was a university after him. So <laughs> so it was you know, self-serving, yeah. Yes, it was very self-serving. And and you know so you you look at that and you, and you see the same thing really going on today, you know. Right. You know, we have people who are spending millions and millions of dollars so that they can be blasted into space. <laughs> that could be a lot of people can educate a lot of people and and Education is a is a key element to people succeeding. So you know things like that. I think it's very important. Like you have to understand history and hope you don't repeat it. It's amazing how many times we do. Hmm. Yeah, and I think when I look at the Gilded Age, I can see as, as you look more into their individual lives. I think, oh, this all this wealth, and they still weren't happy. And so I feel like I can learn from that myself. <laughs> today. Well, exactly. And, you know, and, and the, and the funny thing is too, you know, um, so they didn't have federal income tax until about, I want to say it was like 1913. I might be off a couple years on that. Don't quote mm-hmm. me. Um, but um, so all of those gigantic mansions that they built, then what happened was they had to start paying tax <laughs> on them. So the, so the ancestors couldn't afford them, you know? So, you know, that's how all these families, including the Vanderbilts and, and began, you know, they, they lost, I mean, it, I mean, the Vanderbilts, I mean, geez, $300 million was, they had at one point. And then right. to, you know, I mean, less than a hundred years later, that money is all gone. Yeah. You know, it's, um, it's so yeah, the, the history is just, is just fascinating. And that's really why like there is debate on when the Gilded Age ended. Right. And mm-hmm. some people say um, World War One. Some people say, you know, no, it was 1910. I really believe it was, it was when the federal income tax came uh, into play because then all of a sudden the party was over because yeah. they had to start paying taxes. And yeah. so they didn't have as much disposable income to, you know, 
build these, you know, so that they, they couldn't have seven houses. They could only have three. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. It's amazing. Well, Jen, this has been a fantastic conversation. What is the best way for listeners to follow you? Um, I'm most active on Instagram, Jen Toronto author. Well, actually I just like, Within like a year or so, got on Instagram. I was badgered into doing it. I uh, am old, and um, no, but I'm getting better at it. F- figured out where those messages are hid- hiding all the time. <laughs> and um, and then my Jed Toronto author Facebook page. Um, I'm on there a lot. Okay, and those are those are pretty much the two places. Right. Okay. Well, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you, Allison. It was fun chatting with you. Yes, it was great. See what I mean, guys? That was such a fun, lively conversation. I just, I really get so much out of these interviews. It's almost like it'd be worth it even if I weren't putting it out there for you. But then why would anyone talk to me? It's only because you guys are listening that any of these great authors get on the show with me. So thank you for listening. And here are some ways you can support the show aside from listening. If you subscribe to the show on whatever app you use, that would be awesome. And then if you could also rate the show and review it, writing a review can take as little as like 30 seconds. If you just, you know, make up a name for yourself and say how much you love the show, give it five stars, just say something like great show, or I got a lot of good ideas about what to read. That's super helpful because it puts the show out there to other people who might enjoy it. And then um, you can, if you want to join the conversation on Facebook, join the Facebook group. You can find it by searching Facebook for Historical Fiction Unpacked Podcast Group. And then you can follow us on Instagram at Historical Fiction Unpacked. And you can also um, support the show with your pocketbook on Patreon. And you can find our Patreon account. It's patreon.com slash Treat. This is the only case where you have to spell Allison right. Allison has one L. It's A-L-I-S-O-N-T-R-E-A-T. And also, guys, go to the show notes because all these things are linked in the show notes. My Facebook group, the Instagram account, the Patreon account, and Jen's books and the books that we discussed on the show, other books about the Gilded Age. Um, go to the show notes because you're going to find a lot of resources there. And if they're not in your app, if you're not using like Apple Podcasts or someplace that has the show notes right there in the app, you can find the show notes at alisontreat.com slash blog that has all the show notes living right there for you to peruse whenever it strikes your fancy. So avail yourself of that resource. Now you guys know if you've listened to the show at all, that I love to end with a quote. So this one comes from Sid Moore. Disregard for the past will never do us any good. Without it, we cannot know truly who we are. So keep reading historical fiction, my friends, and I will talk to you again next week. 